We started with a question. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship? What was your relationship? What was your relationship with the earth? With the earth growing up. The earth like as a child. As a child. What was your relationship with the earth like as a child? I remember as a child being completely terrified of dogs. I grew up playing and eating red dirt. Grew up on a potato and dairy farm with six brothers. I like to think that I still have one foot in the furrow. A lot of people had positive memories. I can remember feeling happy just to have a vacant lot in our neighborhood to run around in and to be out in the, in the outdoors and under the sky. Here we had hiked up to some absurd thousands of feet and the person that we were hiking with who knew the area said, oh, we're high enough, you can just drink the water. We just drank water out of nature and it was amazing. And for others, it was a bit more complicated. You know you're getting close if you smell funky rotten eggs or you smell sulfur. Looking back now, that was straight degradation. I was a very sensory sensitive child and so uh, being indoors, protected from extreme heat and cold and, and wind <laughs> was my preference. And we have a lot of dandelions in the summer in our backyard. Ooh, and we them. don't kill them. Uh -huh. Like we just leave them there because my dad really likes dandelion soup. Yeah. I mean, dandelion salad. soup. Salad. Salad. Ooh. Ooh, that sounds good. Are they tasty? I don't like salad. And more than anything, we heard stories. We hiked these woods. We knew we were in a couple of caves. We played in caves. You still know where those caves are? Oh yeah. <laughs> They're probably full of bears now. <laughs> Just like totally into this caterpillar and everyone was so amazed and then one kid took like a little pine cone and just like tapped it and out came this fake yellow tongue like boom right out of it and the whole group of just went Whoop! Why did we ask? Well, for starters, we didn't have a whole lot of time to talk with them. It was the sweetest drink I could have imagined, and if I could be satisfied through a drink in the same way today, I would choose it first over any other options that I could buy. And you learn a lot about someone this way. Canned peaches and apple dumplings, all of that, fried pies, apple pies. If you haven't had a fried apple pie, shame on you. And we wanted to start with an easy question, because we were about to talk about climate change. Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Michaela Mast. And I'm Harrison Horst. Thanks for joining us. So we're in our early 20s. We graduated from college in May of 2018. And for us, climate change is a big part of our reality. It covers our news feeds, it pervades our hopes and dreams, and it's also central to our faith. For some people, it seems like faith and climate change conflict, but for us, they go hand in hand, and that's what we're here to explore. We're not reporters or storytellers, and we're not really even podcasters. But this year, we're giving it a try because this feels important. So in the past few months, we've talked to farmers, theologians, scientists and pastors and coal miners, directors of summer camps and of food pantries. The consensus from the ground is clear. The climate is changing, and it's changing here and now in this country. 
But can we learn to care for one another in the midst of it? What would it look like to lean into the reality of climate change enough to support all affected communities? Today we'll hear from three very different people, all with different stories from different places. Each of their stories is powerful in its own right, but when woven together, the true complexity of the conversation on climate change begins to take shape. So for today's question, what do an Old Testament scholar, a pastor handyman from West Virginia, and a Zimbabwean feminist have in common? And one more thing before we start, that other voice you heard at the beginning, that's Sarah Longenecker, our good friend and co-creator of this project. She's also our photographer and web designer and helps with interviews and production, so you may hear her from time to time. Person, place, and story number one. I come from a big family. There were 16 kids in our family, and there was 10 in Jones. And uh, every weekend at my, my mom's house, there was between 30 and 40 people every weekend. That We wouldn't have anything special. That was just the way we did it. This is Randy Green. We're in Elkhorn, West Virginia. And, I don't, and I've asked myself a lot of times why I kept coming back here, believe me. But I guess it was because family was here, and I actually like the place. I mean, I like it. I, I just, I like it. I don't have this much freedom in most other places, and I like my freedom. Randy has a kind face with a close-cropped white beard, and he's wearing a straw hat. We found Randy on the wide back porch of his farmhouse, strumming a guitar, and now we're sitting across from him and his wife, Joan, at their dining room table. Took me a while to get used to it, though. Oh yeah, <laughs> I wasn't used to outhouses, and mm-hmm. they had they had a bathroom, but they had an outhouse too, and, and the hills and the mountains, and it seemed like it took forever just to go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. But after I got out here and went back, I didn't want to be out there. I wanted to come back here. Uh-huh. I loved it. We're in southern West Virginia, the heart of the coal belt. Every few minutes, we hear the rumble of a train passing by on the tracks next to his house. Yeah, I don't mind them logging. That's 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 okay. the that's the first thing. I okay. I don't mind. I'm not a tree hugger. I don't mind them logging. <laughs> I don't mind them digging the coal. The problem is not logging. The problem is the way greedy people do it. Mm. If you want a tree that's 50 yards away, they take a bulldozer and push a road out and push all these other trees over, and they cut it down and get it. And but you push down 50 more to get to it, and they and you leave them laying. Randy's a longtime resident of McDowell County, and he's seen a lot. He has almost unlimited energy and seemingly unlimited stories to accompany it. I could take you up here where they logged before, and the roads that were good roads that we rode on all the time. I went in after they logged it, and you'd have to have to take a chainsaw. You'd be cutting all day to get a quarter of a mile. They just destroyed the place. And I'm thinking, well, with all these, there's thousands of trees laying here. What did you take with you? And that's one I don't know what what did you get? You left everything. There's one place up here that was that was a stand of big uh, uh, river birch, and they cut every tree in the whole stand. You know how many they took? Nothing. Nothing. Some of those birches two foot in diameter, and they cut them down and left them laying. I just I mean that t- that's not logging. That's stupidity. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I don't, as far as the resources, they're destroying our resources is what they're doing. Randy's done a little bit of everything. Construction, plumbing, pastoring. Joan and him even ran a hospice from their house for a while. But his faith is always at the center of his work. When I'm up here, I love to go up in the mountains. And when I'm up here and I look and I think, God, 
you piled a bunch of rocks together and it's more beautiful than anything man's ever made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when a man thinks he's doing something great and says, look at what I've done, I just point to God's rock pile and say, man, you, you ain't done nothing. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't really like it when they go tearing up God's rock pile either. Right. <laughs> God entrusted us with all of this. He didn't leave the fate of the world in our hands. But he entrusted us with the resources that you have here. He entrusted us with the things that are around you. I believe he put them there for man's use. But somehow we found a way to abuse everything that God done. When we started asking Randy questions about climate change, we got some answers that maybe we weren't quite expecting. Yeah, I got some issues with it myself. Really? Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah. it is changing. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. It's not a, you don't have to guess whether it's changing or not, and that's not a question. It is changing. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that the cause of it mm-hmm. is what they're saying is the cause of it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the thing. There's no, the science on it is too questionable, shall we say, and the methods used to measure it are too questionable. When they do this, they, the methods they use, they assume too much. Once you start assuming things, then uh, the findings that you come up with are, are invalid. And uh, so I have some problems with the cause of climate change, not the fact that the climate's changing. Uh, it is changing. But as we talked with Randy Moore, it seemed like the root of his concerns had more to do with faith in God than with anything. The problem with a lot of these researchers is they got off of that base. They got off of the base. of God. God has to be the base of everything. If he's not, then you already started off wrong. What can you build on a foundation that's made of sand? And these people have gotten totally away from God. For the most part, these scientists that do this research don't even believe there is one. And another thing about that, do you think God would actually leave the fate of the planet in the hands of man? No. (laughs) No. God's never left this planet and the fate of this planet in the hands of man. He never did do that. He never will. What do you uh, all think about climate change? <laughs> <laughs> you got your own views about it, I'd uh-huh. say. Well, we talk about it for seven hours every day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In some way or another. <laughs> well, how does it fit in as far as faith with you all? I mean, are, are, yeah. You're all Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's why I care about this. Right, exactly. I wasn't ready to be put on the spot, but that is what this project is all about. So I gave it a try. I, I'm, um, as a follower of Jesus, I believe that my utmost goals are to, like, to love people and to love God and what God has given us, um, which sounds like you feel the same way. Yeah. And, I you're right. um, and so when it comes to loving the earth and loving the land, that's where that comes from. And then the loving people part, the way that the world is changing and, um, and certain climate patterns are changing means that the people who are, are already the most poor are going to be, are the most affected. My goal is to love my neighbors, the people who live right next to me, the people who live in my home the people who live um, in this community and, and the people who live, you know, in Bangladesh. And, right, exactly. You know, everyone, every single person around the world. And so that's 
to me where it comes in and I realize this is where we might differ is that I believe that what I'm doing um, in my life in, in um, Harrisonburg, Virginia is contributing to the climate changes that are causing the suffering of a lot of those people. And so for me, I need to figure out how I can live in a way that is, um, that is going to reduce that suffering for those people as much as possible. And so I feel like that's, that's why I'm doing this and talking about it with people and figuring out um, how, yeah, how to explain how my faith is all tied up in it um, and is really at the root of, of it all. Yeah. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And, and the thing, too, uh, you don't want to do things that you know are uh, that's going to cause somebody else a problem. I don't mm-hmm. care who it is or where they're at. Uh, I'm just not as sure that that I'm having any effect on that. You know what I mean? Or, or In other words, if probably if I thought this was the main cause of it, then uh, and if I thought man even was the main cause of it, which mm-hmm. I don't, but if I did... Uh, then I guess I'd be looking at what my thing is. What can you do to stop it or change it? Uh, and you and I guess that's what you're all doing. You look for ways. How do you put all this together in a way that makes sense mm-hmm. and is fair? And so you're not picking one side or one place, and you're not making a political matter out of it. Mm-hmm. It gets made into a political matter every time you talk to somebody about it, almost. And it's not a political matter. I'm sorry, it's not. If Listen, if it concerns everybody in the world, it's not political, brother. <laughs> yeah. that's, so, what, that's, what that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so you want to leave the smallest footprint you can leave in the sand, right? Mm-hmm. It's like when I go in the woods, when I come home, I don't want you to be able to tell where I've been there. Mm-hmm. I want to leave nothing mm-hmm. there. If you go there, you should not be able to see that I've been there. Uh, and I suppose it's the same thing. If you believe this is what's causing it, then you want to make the smallest contribution to it possible. But how, how, do, you, how do you actually, how do you know or how do you change it? And, and let me ask you this. If we stop in this country right now burning any fossil fuel, and we took, a, uh, if you put uh, more restrictions on vehicles, well, the price of the vehicle goes up. Well, it's still the poor guy that gets stuck. It's still the, I don't care. But now this is true, and not only in with this, but when everything. The poor seem to pay the biggest price every single time. away from Randy and Joan's house feeling both challenged and energized. Our normal one-hour interview had lasted for almost three. Randy was actually one of the first people I'd ever had a conversation with who was willing to push back against my beliefs and also take them seriously enough to imagine where those beliefs would lead him. And so where did that land us? Well, for one, I started to wonder who else my footprint is affecting. And second, I realized that I can't even imagine what a restored relationship between us, God, and the land looks like. And that leads us to a phone call.
Person, place, and story number two. I grew up in rural Oklahoma, and Oklahoma is part of the the Great Plains. So this vast expanse of land, things tend to be kind of far apart because of there's just so much space, and it's all spread out, and it was ranching land, right? So mm-hmm. big open spaces. At times, it could could manifest as a certain hopelessness of like, you know, lost in this sea of land and nowhere to be. Um, but th- then also this sort of, man, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go far. This is Aubrey Taylor McLean, Hebrew Bible scholar and professor at Greenville University in Illinois. Sarah and I first met her back in 2016 in Jerusalem, where she lived, studied, and taught for about 10 years. I also live briefly in England, and they have... This, this island mentality of like, I mean, this is what you got, people. Like, we can't mm-hmm. do much about this. And it, it kind of manifests itself in that that stiff upper lip kind of British approach to life. Like, everything's terrible. Ha, ha, ha. You know, <laughs> just jolly and sarcastic. Aubrey has spent much of her academic career trying to understand the way the land and people of the Bible shaped each other. When you hear her talk, a full picture of the Bible's story arc takes shape, and this sets the stage for us, because we are actors in that narrative, which stretches across time and space. When I think about the biblical story, there is, there's this sort of setup from the beginning that speaks of hope. Um, I, I like to frame the events with two main covenants. The first is the covenant with Abraham. It's, it's sort of the foundation. It's the background of the whole story. And um, Genesis 15 gives us this striking image of God pledging himself to Abraham. And God expects nothing in return. When a covenant is made, the party receiving the gift usually has some sort of obligation to fulfill. But this time is different. God takes on all the potential consequences and all the responsibility and Abraham is just a passive recipient of God's promise that he's going to work through him and his family. And it's part of this larger picture of uh, what we hear in Genesis 12, that Abraham was going to ultimately be a blessing to all peoples. So that's the first covenant. The second covenant takes place at Sinai, and this one's not quite as unusual. God promises to provide for Israel but if they become like the rest of the world and they become an unethical society, then that relationship is broken. And it's not just broken with God, it's broken with the land. And so the inevitability is that uh, the land will not produce for them. And then eventually exile from the land is an inevitability. Israel knows this, but they don't represent God the way they're supposed to. They've broken the covenant. And so... First, it was the Assyrians, and finally the Babylonians. They came, they conquered the nation, and they took the people away. Exile. There were some people left, but they were decimated. They were so impoverished. The land was torn up, resources were drained, the Babylonians had taken everything. This is the context for Psalm 126. In Psalm 126, we have this joyful moment where the people realize that God is actually going to forgive them of all of this and restore them to the land. So the first part of it's pretty familiar for people. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. And it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. He has done great things for us and we rejoice. So that 
is like celebrating, okay, we are, we are getting to come back from exile. Mm-hmm. And then this prayer here, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the water courses in the Negev. So that's a, a very dry region in Israel that barely ever has water. It's only when it rains. And then it says, may those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy and those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, they shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying sheaves. Mm-hmm. And, and so the question that I'll, I'll ask uh, students often is like, why would anyone ever be like planting while crying? Why, why is this a sad moment? And the best I can figure is if you, if you imagine where does our seed come from every year? It has to come from the previous year's harvest. Uh, and if you've lived through war and you've lived through uh, drought, you're not going to have very much left. And mm-hmm. eventually there comes a year where you have to choose to eat or to plant. Mm-hmm. And that is a painful choice. It's a terrifying choice. And the image I see here of people sowing in tears planting while weeping, this is actually an image of faith. Okay, so we have this story in Psalms, Mm -hmm. and it connects back to the covenants. So the the story in Psalms is like a a real or practical example of the covenants in action, right? This is Mm -hmm. how God lives through the covenant with his people. Um, And it's also an example of the covenant between the people in the land, right? Mm, right. And, and how all of those are, are connected. But I, I guess like the, the next question is why, why does that covenant exist? Why did God make this like covenant um, that is, you know, so like generous to his people? What, what's the purpose of that? And I guess in Aubrey's perspective, the reason for that covenant actually goes back to Genesis and the fall, right? Right. Um, that's like that's the onus for the entire thing. So Genesis two and three, with the story of the fall, as we we talk about it, um, you know, in Christian rhetoric, the fall has become a much more catastrophic concept than actually early Christian or Jewish theology would suggest. Hmm. And in more uh, like early Eastern Christian thought. The image of God in mankind was not destroyed at the fall. It was marred, but it was not destroyed. In Aubrey's words, mankind decided to become the arbiter of what is good and what is evil, which in turn leads to a relationship between God and humans that feels kind of awkward. This relationship is fractured to some degree. Is that is that the end of the story? And the fact that it's not, it's the beginning of the story, <laughs> is, is kind of the point. And we see from this point forward in the, the biblical narrative, God's on this restoration mission. And it's one of the most significant parts of biblical theology, to my mind, is that justice, true justice, is about restoration. It's not about punishment. And even though there are consequences for working against God, ultimately there is, a, there is a restorative plan that's being enacted. All of Hebraic theology points us to there will be a day when all things will be set right. God will restore God and man's relationship. He will restore nature. Nature is always a part of that image. 
But then what responsibility do you see, like in the Bible, what responsibility does it show us having in that restoration process too? Yes. So mankind's responsibility in the restorative process. I think of, for example, the covenant at Sinai. This is sort of the beginning of, okay, Israel, you're in relationship with God and you've been given certain expectations now. Mm-hmm. And if we were to distill the Torah, you know, Jesus did this, what is it? But to love God, love others. Um, it's this um, care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger among us. It's this ethical image of, of life. We are to care for others. Mm -hmm. And so that restorative process, he keeps inviting people into it. So it's, it's beginning with Abraham and the children of Israel. And then Jesus is also reminding his people, this is who you're called to be. This restorative process is the essence of the biblical story arc. And the whole time God is calling his people to take an active part. We can look throughout the biblical story and see God giving people agency and at the same time sending prophets, uh, messengers to call people back to a right relationship with him um, and with others. That's, that's always a part of the package. And so in that, in that process, if he's sending messengers and he's calling people to respond, it must mean that we can and that it matters. We don't have the story of the average person in the, in the Bible. We have the stories mm-hmm. of the kings. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's clear from the narrative that what the kings chose to do hurt everybody. They went into exile because of the choices of the kings. Mm-hmm. So that, that to me communicates how powerful our agency is. So how does this relate to our world today? Who are the prophets? Who are the kings? And maybe most importantly, who is going into exile? Person, place, and story number three. Um, hi, my name is Wanawuhle Nube and um, I'm visiting from Zimbabwe. I had an inextricable relationship with the earth as a child. Um, well, in a funny way, I did not want to be dirty, but I loved to eat whatever my mom and grandmother grew from the earth. Hence, um, our food, our plate of food was um, something that was grown by the females in our family. We crossed paths with Sibo in Goshen, Indiana. She was in the U.S. to share stories about climate change from her home country, Zimbabwe. I grew up on a plot that's typically like three acres in size. And on that plot, my parents would typically grow... um, corn, small grains, sugar cane, and fruit and vegetables, depending on the season of the year. And so 
that in itself gave me a good relationship with the land, particularly during school holidays. There'd be no excuse for not working the land. Sibo is the type of person you notice when they walk into a room. She carries herself with almost a regal air, an impeccable posture. What I love, um, again, specifically about Zimbabwe, I think, is the clean air. (laughs) The mornings are exceptionally beautiful. They help you recoil and remember what you were born for. As she puts it, Sibo loves to eat and breathe sustainable development. As a peace builder with the Brethren in Christ Compassion and Development Services, she works closely with people on the ground food security, water sanitation and health, peace building initiatives, education and advocacy, and disaster relief. They do it all. And what are some of the ways you've seen climate change impact those families? The principal way has been through the droughts, which over the years have tended to come more frequently. And after coming more frequently, we've seen that when it rains, there's sort of a deluge in a short period of time. And that's been a serious problem both for um, uh, people and also their livestock. Yeah, water is pretty important and um, the droughts haven't been helpful at all. And hence, we have had to assist communities to know when to plant on time and what to plant. And we've seen communities at least go back to um, the fast-growing varieties that are more hardier. Sivo told us that farmers in Zimbabwe have actually started moving away from maize and back toward a variety of crops that can withstand the droughts. The droughts have also caused us to work harder at looking at small dams, looking at how to also capture the water rather than let it fall and let it run off. So capture of water and water retention mechanisms has been one of the big ways in which we've tried to reverse the adverse impact of climate change. From her vantage point in Zimbabwe, the ripple effects of a changing climate are highly visible. One of the stories that um, really moves my heart is the story of a woman I'll call Esther. Before she heard about conservation agriculture, she had tried to work her small plot of land and her husband had passed away and so she was in a very terrible space of vulnerability and had decided to abandon her land she had been using um, conventional ways of growing crops and um, these weren't obviously doing well in light of the persistent and protracted droughts hence she stopped growing crops And that was very sad because she didn't have many choices of what else she could do within uh, her village. And so it is that she chose perhaps to work by selling her body. She didn't have a great name at all and uh, was the center of whisperings in the community. However, she thought to take a stab at conservation agriculture. And from a pathetic field, she produced a bumper harvest that caused the provincial offices of the Agriculture Extension Office to send a delegation to come and see how she did it. (laughs) 
Esther's harvest the following year was even bigger, and the third year, bigger still. And her name changed. She no longer had to sell her body. She had enough to feed her children. She had enough to sell. She had enough to barter for other things, foods, and services that she needed. And she quips to me the other day and she says, you know, I got, I got to realize that the changing climate had pushed me to make really terrible decisions. But I'm so glad that I started doing conservation agriculture. Now I am healed. Now I have a good name in my community. I really feel dignified, you know. people of the Psalms experienced the consequences of acting outside the covenant with God in a very real way. Esther's family, many in Randy's community, they know what it means to choose between eating today or planting for tomorrow. And maybe that's part of the problem. I don't have to make that choice, but others do. As we lean into the realities of climate change, we continue to find injustice everywhere we look. And that's actually why we feel as if we're on the brink of something. What if my well-being is also tied to the health of the land, but in ways I can't see? And what if our collective well-being is reliant on each other? Maybe by realizing our interconnectedness and confronting injustice, could we begin to see restoration taking shape? We started by asking people about their relationship with the earth to open the interview, and we ended by asking them about hope to guide us out. What gives me hope is that I'm actually acting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing to be all rhetorical and have a lot of flim flam <laughs> and show people graphs and show people how bad they are and how much they're emitting and how you are suffering. But the big hope for me is that my feet and my hands are acting. And why that gives me hope is because apart from identifying a problem, I've begun to work on it and I'm seeing how there's survival, there's relief, there's, there's a chance at life. And that is a big motivator for continuing to hope. Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longenecker, who is also our photographer and web designer. Theme music is by Jesse Reist and Madeline Miller. Credits music is by Luke Mullet, and transition music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop. Special thanks to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, who is sponsoring this project. And a big thank you to our unsung heroes for the week, Jan and Jeff Kaufman, who graciously hosted us, fed us raspberries and other goodies, and lent us their car to get us to our interviews in Goshen. You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. There we have photo essays that go along with each episode and a ton of resources, as well as previews of episodes to come. 
Okay, so I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mast. See you next week.